Welcome to Surviving Society. A political podcast. Exploring the local and global politics of race and class from a sociological perspective. In conversation with academics and activists, researchers and artists. We platform discussions between knowledge sharers, creatives and intellectuals, and change makers. Our mission is clear. Political education for the masses. Grounded in history, theory and practice. Enjoy the episode and please do share with your networks. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. I'm really excited today to be joined by one of my favourite guest hosts, Ez Chibo, and Surviving Society alumni, Aaron Winter, who is a senior lecturer at Lancaster University, writer, all-round legend, but also our kind of resident far-right slash mainstreaming of (laughs) racism expert here at Surviving Society. Um, One of the reasons why I was saying to you, Aaron, about coming on a few months ago was to talk about the latest iteration or the Conservative government at the moment, like what they're doing, particularly in Britain, like what they're doing, how that's then relating to like the other <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. No, 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 no. Finish, finish. Go on, go on, go on, go on. No, the, the look was more about the Conservatives than your analysis. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What they're doing. But like, it's just so hard. I was saying to Ez this morning, like we could sit and spar and talk about this stuff like over and over and over again, all the different details of it. But then when it comes to the lived experience of your multi-ethnic, multi-class population of Britain, who cares? Should they care? And how do we make people care again about like politics? Or then is that at the same time playing into a narrative that people are tired of talking about these things yeah i mean i think they should care i think people should care i think the problem i think there's two sort of intersecting problems i mean because there's a lot of problems but that i'm thinking Mm -hmm. of right now is one is is that we've been told what we should care about yeah for so long and that was disproportionately immigration Mm -hmm. the white working class left behind grievances um, terrorism from certain communities or movements. And we've also been told that the establishment only cares about certain people who care about that, even if they have to invent them. I think, and I, I, obviously I wouldn't speak for everyone at various sharp ends of that, but I think like you're being, like people are being told again and again and again, we don't care about you. Um, not only that, but you you will be at best collateral damage for our electoral aspirations. And then we're hearing that from the Labour Party as well. And I think I think care, particularly in a post-COVID context and in the context of that, is really, really important. But I think we have to recapture that idea. We have to recapture what it means, who, who matters and who we can depend on to care about us. And I say us not meaning me, but I mean different communities who are disproportionately affected by this. Mm. And I guess one of the things that we've been thinking about on the show over the past few years is how that lack of care then implicates some people's capacity to imagine a life where they are cared for and then you end up in a situation where where you're... I'll speak for myself, where... I think about I think about times when you you felt uncared for, whether it's by the state or by your community or or various people around you. Like you start to think, okay, well, what can I hold on for myself? And like 
it's getting harder and harder, I think, for me personally to justify to those people that are experiencing the sharper ends of marginalisation. It's getting harder and harder to justify that this world is a, can be some can be somewhere livable for them. I think that what we're speaking to here is the labour of imagining something new, and it's recognising the labour involved in that. Um, so it's not as simple as like, oh yeah, we can imagine, but it's like, <laughs> like, what, uh, and what does that take, and who does it take from, um, and actually, who, the stakes are, who are the stakes higher for if we don't get what we imagine? So that actually, it serves in many ways, it serves communities to just remain in what we see as reality today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think I think the idea of what we can imagine also overlaps with the way in which politics has been constructed as the only alternative to the status quo are variations on its own reactionary defensiveness. And at best, you're going to get a so-called populist or far right, which we have to stop. And that's where the eye goes. The eye goes, we have to stop the fascists. So let's have what we already have, but slightly worse. And I think this has also been, so there's a, a lack of imagination, but also a lack of alternatives. The horizons of how we're, we're able to or allowed to think about these things has really been sort of like compromised, constrained, and like, I mean, collapsed effectively. And I think, I think the, you know, this is, a, this is a longer term conservative project, but I think we saw it in our sort of more recent memory at its most sort of brutal beginning with austerity. And the sort of the construct of the benefit scrounger. And I've always found it quite interesting was at a certain point, it was like all working class people. And then at a certain point, it became, no, you know what? We're going to look after our own in completely sort of like white mm. nativist um, racist terms. And you have this switching around of who matters and I guess, I guess it would be like this, like further clarifications of who matters as if the first one was a sort of just a trick of the sort of trick of the trade. Mm -hmm. And I think you're seeing that now with the complete like serious radicalization of, of Tory policy, mm -hmm. deportation, mobilization of vigilantes against asylum seekers in hotels and other residences. I mean, it's, it's escalating and escalating and escalating, not only who matters, but who's human yes. and whose life is worth it. And we see it at its most overt in the Mediterranean. Definitely. And I think that where you're seeing that kind of, that increased radicalization of like Tory policy and them having like invariably different foot soldiers of this work this yeah and it is I feel like it is work for some people as well it's become like their work like to to be ambassadors of harm and hate um one thing that's really surprised me um when you see kind of visualization um both in the media on social media of who is doing of, of who is doing this or who is being radicalized by this and it's not just white people there are an, it's, it's an eclectic mix of people and i think that in itself is part of is a is a consequence of racisms um sexisms of course and it's 
it's too easy for us to say now this is white skinheads like yeah. because like it, do you know it, what I mean? It's also a consequence of integration. Yeah, like it's actually when <laughs> it's, it shows integration at its best. It shows when when you have an integrated system where people are learning the same things in the same way. It doesn't matter who those people quote unquote are or what mm. they look like, and actually, like it, it proves and disproves the point around that how to integrate um, into or assimilate into this society because it is people are being reared as foot soldiers of the system as it exists today and um, which is it's insane and it's but then again I think when I, when I think about it from my perspective thinking about community care and that what collective care looks like in the context of imagining and designing new systems there is a double the, the other side to that coin is the pain again that 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 holds in the community so when I'm seeing people that look like me when I'm seeing people whose parents had a similar um kind of root into this space as minded saying some of the harmful things that they're saying that it's a double whammy it's like it's almost extra painful yeah yeah i mean it, it's it i've been thinking a lot about solidarity these days and the way in which divide and rule is so central but at the same time telling people this is a and i don't mean it's an overt sort of telling of but like these are the terms in which you can integrate. These are the terms in which belonging exists. And for some people, belonging is impossible within this sort of regime. Um, but other people, it's contingent and possible. And we see this historically with, with concepts such as probationary whiteness. Um, what does that mean, Aaron? This is the, this is the idea that you're that certain groups, certain ethnic groups who would be defined or characterized as white now had a contingent status. They were not considered white. Um, so would an example be like the Irish? Irish, or... um, Jewish, Jewish people. people okay. and, and that's not to discount the fact that there's diversity within these communities yeah. as well and the communities are not white or not. Yes. Um, but the Greeks, Italians... Mm. Um, and the way in which coming into whiteness, and these are largely immigrant groups, working class mm. immigrant groups at certain historical periods, can come into whiteness through a variety of processes. One is um, subsequent generations of immigrant of immigrants or waves of immigration that are um, that are racialized, that come from already racialized places that are linked to colonialism, that they they enter the capitalist system, are able to get access to jobs, property ownership, and a whole bunch of other processes. But the, the, the fact that you see these are communities that well, Nixon and then Reagan mobilized in the backlash to civil rights, mm -hmm. that, that close the door behind you, you've made it, you no longer are part of that sort of stigmatized, scapegoated, racialized community. And and it's quite interesting because that the ability to enter into whiteness and enter into belonging within these sort of conservative uh, regimes um, of, uh, of nationhood or whatnot um, is contingent who gets in, but also, um, you know, the tests are largely... And we see this today here with particularly with like the Conservative Party, the tests may be higher 
you might have to you may have to shut the door behind you in a more overt mm-hmm. and stronger and extreme way but also if you if you mess up the fall is still the same because you don't you're never allowed to abandon or to completely remove yourself from that the, 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 the white gaze effectively mm-hmm. your identity is only valued within the white within the white gaze there is no value. And like when, when you're in and you're in, wherever you are on that hierarchy, you're still in that space. So just because yeah. you're in, it doesn't mean that you're at the top. You're still on another conveyor belt. Um, and it is like, so even speaking about it in this way is mind-blowing. The It's so mind-blowingly simple. And the, like, it's there, it's in front of us. But then what do we what do we do with that? What do we do? And what does this, how does this relate down to the like community level? Um, what do we do? It's really hard because I, t- I think that analysis is so spot on, Aaron. Really, really appreciate that. Thank you. I think that just on an interpersonal level, having that conversation, let's just say with the groups that you were talking about, or also with people that are like myself, that are like middle class black people now, having that conversation that like you have entered into a an accepted or a quote unquote a partially a partially accepted position within the white gaze and understanding that there needs to be a kind of a politics of race traitorism yeah, race yeah. traitorism um that you have to you have to divert and withdraw from that in order to bring people with you. I think that conversation is one that people really struggle with because it means, it doesn't necessarily mean giving up things or maybe it does something that mean, mean giving up things, but it means having a frank conversation about what you've been willing to, uh, what you've been willing to participate in or what you've been willing to both acknowledge or overlook or I don't know it might not be as it might not be as sharp as that but there is something interesting about how having that conversation with the people that you're you mentioned Aaron um is difficult and I guess it's difficult because they're still not you're still not fully accepted the, 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 the drop is large as you said yeah I mean it's such a difficult one and it wouldn't I mean, I know the I know the conversations I have with my own family and my own community, <laughs> and I know that they're ongoing despite many many generations now of, um, I guess, whiteness in Canada. Mm. Um, it's it's an interesting one because I people are. I mean, I've got my politics around it. I know what I would like to imagine to go to go back to that, but. Um, I can't tell people what to do and what to think and people are struggling their own ways and trying to sort of, you know, um, belong or make it in different ways. Some ways which I think are problematic, Mm -hmm. some ways I think compromise an anti-racist politics. But you also see how quickly um, two things occur. One is the fall. Because it doesn't matter how integrated into the system you are and how much you accept it and become sort of a cheerleader for it. Um, you are a foot soldier for it or a cheerleader. It depends what your position it is, I think. Um, you're still going to be targeted by that system, uh, that racist system. But I think, I don't know, the, I think the other thing is, is that we can see how quickly 
it is used, success is used of individuals to attack anti-racist and the left. Mm. I was saying, see, you reject this person's success and you're calling us racists. You think Brexit was all a white working class thing, but haha, look at these statistics, right? And they'll, they'll, and there's some good research on this, but it, it's, I'm not talking about who voted for Brexit and who didn't, but I'm talking about the way in which diversity is we- on right wing causes is weaponized to debunk anti racists, not to fight against racism. And you have to, we have to follow these kind of what is broadly termed also like culture war or backlash politics, but it's, it's constant moving. I think we see some, um, I don't want to name names today, but like we can see on Twitter what's going on with the accusations against Jess Phillips of racism. I really want to say something about Jess Phillips. I'm going to hold my tongue. Well, I'm, this is <laughs> no, this is not a saying Jess Phillips is right in the yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that people who have been on a stage hammering her anti-racism is the worst thing to happen to society are fully capable of weaponizing it if it impedes their cause. And I'm saying, and, I, and I'm, I'm seeing this as well, particularly just to go back to when I was talking about my, my own community, the way in which the fight against anti-Semitism has become so layered and sort of antagonistic and, I guess, um, constructed. Um sometimes in the service of, you know, the right, whiteness, sometimes progressive politics, and the way in which sort of like it becomes part of a, and I'm, I'm air quoting here, culture war, because I don't think it's about culture. I don't think it's a war. But, um, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that probably needs to be unpacked. No, but, I, I want us to unpack culture war in a minute, but yeah, yeah, yeah. carry on, carry on. <laughs> thought we might get to that. <laughs> but yeah, the way in which it becomes part of fodder for this kind of, this reactionary politics. God, it's, got, it's got very like playground, hasn't it? Yeah. It's got very like, and it is, it's people aligning themselves with the side rather than having to face the thing, um, which is frustrating. But I also see it, I see it in my own, like I always have to come back to what and what, yeah. what's going on for me. So it's about where we draw our lines. Um, and like, actually when you think about it outside of that nation state, and when you think about like, in as much as my politics are, what my politics are, there are definitely choices that I make when things are further out of sight around like what I wear, around the phone that I have, and that how that plays into kind of me, yeah, race traitoring, yeah. right? So if we're yeah. having that, if we're having the conversation that actually, where do I theme myself hold those politics and and that how do I justify it to myself um and then that when I think again thinking about bringing it back into the if we're teaching this or if we're working with communities around that what because people are tired and that's so people and people don't want more things to have to sacrifice or give up particularly people that are in marginalized communities so it's like actually how do we provide a version of care that allows people to opt into imagining with us mm. I like the playground analogy a lot um, <laughs> sure. um, no, but I, I also, I mean, I think I, on, on the idea of people are tired, I think that goes to what, what we were talking about before also about the exhaustion with politics. Now, they're exhaustion because of the effects of politics 
and the effects of racism and the effects of capitalism. But it actually, it manifests as an exhaustion with politics. And people also live very, very busy, unequally hard lives. And the ability to take care of, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We have sort of this neoliberal system. We're supposed to take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Where's the time to do that? And the state is constantly at, retreating, which some people embrace that whole kind of like individual autonomy thing. But uh, other people are sort of like, you know, it's it you're you're not you're not seen as worth it. And you've got to sort of remember that in a way that is not individualistic, I guess. But the playground thing also I was I was kind of really like is it got me thinking when you mentioned conspiracy theories mm-hmm. about the sort of the anti woke thing. Now I realize woke has, wokeness has a really rich history, but it's obviously being used like a schoolyard insult now. And it's it's, it's a dog whistle as well. It's yeah. a dog whistle, absolutely, at like screeching human volume. <laughs> um, but yeah, the um, but it, it's it's an interesting one because it's been like you're woke, you're woke, you're woke, and you see this kind of like massive establishment throwing around these terms that a they don't know what they mean. They don't. I mean, they know what they mean by it. Uh, that's why I don't I don't agree with sort of debating the definition and the history of it because they know exactly what they mean and we know what they mean. Mm-hmm. But they're throwing it around like political correctness. Political correctness has gone mad or whatever the mm-hmm. iteration is at that given time. But they're doing it like like you would do it in a schoolyard. Mm-hmm. And it's become and it it's 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 increasingly it's I find it very odd because it seems we have a politics which is very, very strategic, very, very tactical in how it does this and how it weaponizes these things. But it makes it sound like it's... It's legitimate or rational. It's Well, I, I wonder about that. that. I think that's where I was kind of thinking, is we have this idea of like disinformation, false, you know, false news, fake news, et cetera, all this kind of playground stuff. And it, ma- it, it makes people mourn for a previous era of rational, professional politics run by adults, you know, like Tony yeah. Blair. Like Tony Blair. <laughs> <laughs> or in the years, you know, like, oh, George Bush Jr. is so, like, terrible. We need uh, George Bush Sr. Like, mm. so that doesn't solve the problem. But but it, it, it as absurd as the politics get, it's it sees itself as speaking to the people. Again, I'm doing air quotes on a recording. But it's also... And it, it, I think it fits into that kind of like illiberal liberal thing that we were talking about before with the way in which it makes you mourn for at least the establish, the white capitalist establishment who sounds a little more sensible. And these are the choices you get, but it's the same politics. And it also legitimizes the people that are like, I'm not doing this. I'm not involved. Like, I'm not engaging in this. This is ridiculous. And like, yeah. it never, not in my lifetime, I have never, it's never been a more legitimate argument that you're just not involved, you're not engaging with this. Whereas I feel like before, there was more of an argument to be like, right, we need that people fought and died so that we can engage in these processes. Yeah. Whereas now, it like you, I'm hearing that I'm not involved, I'm not involved in this, I'm not participating in this. And I'm like, do you know what, mate? I, I hear that. I like, I can hear why someone completely wants to disengage. It's interesting because people will disengage for different reasons. And there's some people who would, I kind of, you know, maybe their engagement is not helpful. But there's the weird thing about this kind of the culture war thing, which the construction of two equal sides. Um, 
or two sides that are actually mm-hmm. involved in this is the idea that it, it it's and it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. It, it can it it allows for constructions of polarization, divisiveness, you know, both sidisms. Mm. And what that can end up doing is can making certain people who benefit from the system and who are privileged within it go, I'm not getting involved and looking somehow superior. People that are marginalized on the sharper end of marginalization, I completely get it. Why are you disengage? And I've got so much like I this that you you've got you're well within your right to do that. But it is those people, isn't it, that actually have power and hold a certain kind of stake or position in society. They're able to disengage even more now. Like let's say you're kind of like celebrity class. Like when we're not involved, but I'll sponsor a scholarship here or I'll do this here or I'll do some philanthropy. But then it's not like you don't want that. But then it's interesting, like, I don't know. Yeah, I like the idea of, you know, you want that because the amount of times people say, well, what do you want? Yeah. When I'm talking about like, you know, I don't want like a certain type of sort of security state. Well, what do you want? <laughs> well, it's like, I've run out of options. <laughs> I'm sure I could think of something else. <laughs> <laughs> or like, um, and it goes to that polarization thing where you're like, you're like, do you don't you want both sides to be able to talk and compromise? No. <laughs> so you're against compromise. Well, yeah. I, I, you're, who are these options that are going to be compromising, and what are their politics? Mm. I mean, do I want Labour and the Tories to compromise? I think they already are. Mm. I think that's pretty much a it's complete. Yeah, I think yeah. that compromising is far from the issue in, yeah. in what, what's going on in our existing system today. And it, it it is that. It is that piece around, like, recognising that there are multiple there are other options or and if there aren't we need to create them and we need to start investing energy and time and resources into that conversation um and like really really doing that really being about that in our spaces and like what we are when i think about it i feel like i'm anyway people that know me know me that there are just certain conversations that i'm just not willing to have anymore because we have had them and we know the answer to that um but there are lots of things that are a little bit more complicated and that actually might and and i think there's also the risk factor um because we know what side we are on in the existing argument we can go and argue it comfortably and not feel stupid and not feel vulnerable whereas when when being asked to imagine something there is a level of like vulnerability and and we have I thought that through to the end no because I haven't had the option to because we're having the same conversation over and over again so it's like actually thinking through the space to like imagine what that looks like in practice like the grace to get things wrong the grace to figure it out the grace to like recognize that there are multiple different sharp edges so like if I'm getting my needs met someone else might not be getting theirs etc etc yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're in a system that insists they're the only ones who can run things and then basically messing up all the time and blaming someone else. So why can't we mess up? Okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think it it reminded me, I mean, I, I guess it brings to mind two, two things. One is sort of debates about abolition and the yeah. way in which you you can imagine within that context a, and within that politics alternatives and a sort of a, a, another society. But you also have to manage a certain politics, micromanage a certain politics, or manage on a sort of micro level certain politics yes. in the in that terrible and already compromised system. Yeah. And it it's 
it's a difficult one because how do you how do you do that when you're also fighting arguments about people with people saying to you, well, you want to abolish it, you want to defund, but what are what are you going to replace it with? And they're in their mind, it's already the police, the state, the, the, the prisons, et cetera. Like they're like, well, you know, and I think that goes to the idea of compromise, but also alternatives, where you're you're being given the answer the second you criticize. And so what ends up happening is the, and the majority of work, which they don't necessarily want to know about, the majority of the work's being done on the ground level, on a micro level, managing people's lives, survival, and people managing their own lives and survival in that system. But you're forced to have those big debates all the time as if you're, you yourself at that dinner table or at that wherever you are on Twitter is going to have the solution to remake society. And I was, I was always, I always find that really interesting because I've, I like the idea of fixing society and myself. Mm. First of all, I don't think anyone needs me to tell them how to run their lives or society. Me personally as an individual and at that dinner table, you're just, you're just, you're rehearsing and repeating the same conversation again and again, which is something I was thinking about when you said that about having these conversations where you have to relitigate like, mm. What's going on now? Race science again, <laughs> you know, you know, like just it's insane how you have to do that. But I think the other the other thing is is that you're you're not you're not allowed to have you're not allowed to do the work. You have to have that big conversation and be accountable to people who are never going to legitimize your politics anyway. That's performing a function, isn't it? Like mm. that's actually the thing that's blocking. Like it's, it's a Toni Morrison quote: "The very yeah. function of racism is distraction." And like, I can't remember the full quote, but there is like, this is what it is designed to do, and this is also why they are at a point where they can just take the piss. Like yeah. they can literally <laughs> just say, stu- "They can take." They they're at a point where they can like, they can have this playground version of politics on the main stage because it is functioning so well that we have got that far that actually we don't even have to appear to be competent um we don't even have to pretend to be competent anymore that we've got because the the machine's working Mm -hmm. and it's doing what it needs to be done and that's and actually by us being incompetent so blatantly that adds to the machine and the function of that us us discussing, us discussing that and distracting us from being able to imagine and think about what an alternative could be. Do you, do you think that like, sorry for asking you a question, no, but no, I, no. I, I was, I've always been fascinated by that quote um, mm. because I was wondering at certain points, and particularly like the past couple of weeks, <laughs> um, whether the function of racism is distraction or the distraction is designed to ensure racism is kind of manifest and maintained. Mm. Because I'm increasingly finding that basically... The, the the distraction is comes in racist form, but it seems like the engine, the the objective of this government and several is racism. Mm. Is act, and it, and and I say that when in light of the recent Supreme Court decision as well about affirmative action. I was just telling us about that yeah. on the walk. Like it's actually it's it's not mental. It's it makes sense. It makes sense. What gonna, it makes sense that this would be the next. The that, next chapter. That's a project that's been going on since civil rights. And the, the ma- first major case um, was 1978. It was at Backey versus, it's the, it's California, it's in California as well, mm-hmm. which is, California was the 96 anti-affirmative action um, decision. This was Harvard and, is it South Carolina? 
I think it was the recent one. But the the idea was like the Bakke case was an attack, was a backlash against the gains of civil rights. The backlash has start, started immediately. I mean, like the backlash was trying to prevent it. <laughs> but like... They're just better organizers than us, you know. I actually do think that. And I'm saying this on air, maybe. I don't that's know. Okay, but but what, the fascists? Yeah, I just think that they are better organizers. I think that they play the long game better than us. Mm. And they are committed to their cause. They are more... Com- yeah. like, whereas I feel like on this side of the fence, there's too much, like, flexibility. <laughs> there's too much flexibility. And I think that actually... And we're not very good at the long game because we're too busy trying to prove that we're right. Um, that we actually t- take away the the effort that goes into, like, actually doing organising. It's interesting. I mean, I mean, like, I you know, it, it should come to a surprise that capitalists are better funded but <laughs> sorry that was like i don't know if that was serious or a joke but it was, <laughs> both. It was both. um but i think also like the idea that i remember this this thing being told when i was an undergraduate student that like everyone starts out left wing but when they become an adult with responsibilities they become right wing right or conservative or capitalist or whatnot first of all it's like the idea that everyone starts out left wing is like a weird idea mm. right but the other thing is is that it's it's not a foregone conclusion that you're going to become conservative. It's often being told by people who were marginally liberal who became center-right. So it's like a weird trajectory, radical trajectory they're referring to that didn't actually occur. But you you can't, you know, if, let's pretend for a moment that's true. And this is about the sustainability of left-wing arguments and movements over time. Let's say that just for students, just in that in the terms of that weird sort of North American narrative is, well, tuition fees are going to going to mess with that. The recent Sunak comments about about raise about, about uh, reducing funding to universities because they're full of non-Tory voters, non-Tory voters, voter, people who don't vote Tory. Yeah. And the idea that that there is a strategic and sy- systematic and systemic approach to demoralizing and defanging critique. And I think this goes to the issue about the left as well, or the anti-racist more broadly, is the fact is, is that we're also, you know, very, very diverse communities, yeah. where you are in the class system mm-hmm. as well, and things like that. But like one of the things has been a openness to debate and to factionalism whereas what you see with the right is you see like yeah i mean of course you know i'm a christian fundamentalist who brings in believes in the sanctity of the uh of the family and etc cetera, et cetera. but trump white white supremacist so it's fine yeah you know like they're willing to get over their sort of minor differences <laughs> yeah hate is more important like the, yeah. the their their love of hate is more imp- is like more important. We we can overlook. We we once we're over the line, we can discuss that. I just don't think we've got that on this side of the fence. I think on this side of the fence, there is such a like desire to be right and fear of being wrong, and I'm actually I think more accurately fear of being seen to be wrong. Mm. That actually people don't people have the one or two arguments in their toolbox and just like keep repeating rather than thinking through and imagining something different. Absolutely. I also think that they're all interested in power Mm. and that's, I don't think, I mean, I I do have, I should have qualified this because I mean, no, no one 
needs this qualification in this room, but like the left, it, like what are, it also depends who we're talking about because like the left isn't necessarily anti-racist. It's not necessarily sort of anti-sexist mm. or, you know, there's no, it's not, not everyone's in it on the same terms for the same things. Mm. But also what we're, what we're seeing is people who may I've identified as left also finding common cause with the right yep. over issues on transphobia, white transphobia, yeah. white grievance, white working class grievance, yep. um, and a number of other issues. Um, I remember, I remember this when I was doing, cause I came over to this country to my master's and I, I remember the, deba- the base we're having, cause I was doing philosophy and sociology and it was a weird time to be doing this. It was like 97, 98, Cool Britannia. It was like, mm. where the big debate was realism versus relativism, the threat of postmodernism. And I remember going, wow, it's weird. And does that mean like the threat of like multiple identities or mul- multiple, multi ethnic yeah. society? Okay. Focusing on identity in ways that threaten the universalism of the, of the conservatives okay. and the universal proletariat of the, okay. <laughs> of the sense, left. Yep. And, and, I could imagine this is going to be the most contentious thing. But um, yeah, I remember thinking it's weird that the, the right seems to be against these things on a moral basis and the left on a material basis. Mm. But they seem to hate like Foucault, Judith Butler, um, whatever they were describing Homie Baba as at the time. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Stuart Hall, I think there was it was slightly different because Stuart Hall was like there was another subdivided debate on the left about what he was potentially bringing to or doing to the left. Yeah, doing to. Yeah. yeah. It was weird because my, my first thing when I was doing my PhD is I was editing a, um, a, a postgraduate journal. Yeah. And one of the first things reviews we had was um, a review of a big sort of left-wing conference. I can't even remember what it was. Yeah. It was so long ago. And it was like the whole debate focused on Stuart Hall. And the, yeah. Either the damage or the, 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 the life he brought the to value, the left. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because just as just come back to the point you were talking when you were when you were responding to Aaron's comments about the end of affirmative action and how organised they're able to be, and how they're organising around loving hate or like maybe engaging in fear or fear being at the forefront of how they live their life, how they approach their politics, is the way for us on this side of the fence is our way to kind of come together around a true engagement with a loving of love of each other. I think we're too far away from that to do that authentically at yeah. this stage. I think that everyone needs to like look inwardly. Yeah. And what I mean by that is look at like what is the faction, I'm using air quotes here, of this, of what is the faction that you have influence over? Like mm-hmm. how are you having like this conversation yeah, like really because I think actually if we were to do it if we were to try and unite behind the common cause now it would be an, it would be all our energy going to everyone shouting the loudest the same two arguments that they've been shouting for the last however many decades mm. so I think it is about that actually thinking in earnest like what is the influence that you have that like where are you listening to how can you start this conversation in meaningful ways not on bloody twitter mm. but like how can you who are you actually having conversations with like what are the dinner table conversations what are the events that are happening are we working with the artists like what is going on here and that i think having that conversation on a really micro level and hoping that that like ripples out a factional regrouping yeah 
And like even the regrouping, I think, suggests that we will be in the same group. So even that, I think it's, I don't yeah. think it, I think it is, because I think there is a legitimate piece around people that are the wolves in sheep's clothing like the people that are here that just need to get out that you just you guys just need to go that no you just need to go <laughs> that you just need to get out right, and up. that is you, i mean time's and that up. will happen in these like interpersonal like if i'm at the dinner table and like the first time you're the idiot that's saying the stupid thing second third fifth time i'm like oh you're actually not on my team now yeah like, we can't pretend anymore because we can we can when we're on the massive rallies and we're holding placards and like when it's about the the, the image the picture mm-hmm. we can pretend but when it comes comes to us actually the grit and the graft of the work I cannot stand side by side with you if like if ultimately you're regularly we're we're butting heads and there are so many people like that there are so many people that like I know that in my line of work there are so I just don't talk to I just don't I just don't engage with because it's reached the space of like oh I know I know that like me engaging with you as an ally or me engaging with you as someone that is pretending to be, that it's a waste of resource and energy that I may as well like speak with and be in the spaces where people are on the same page. Yeah, I, th- I just think that's so important. I mean, I think that analysis is amazing. I, I, I mean, as, as a sociologist, I can't help but think that sort of like political and historical material kind of conditions sort of inform certain social relations for better or for worse. And I think I think with the impact of sort of, you know, austerity, cuts, neoliberalism, sort of like the mainstreaming of the far right, you know, all these kind of things, along with the technology like Twitter um, and those kind of platforms, there has been an eating, a call for greater sol- solidarity and conviviality but also in an increasingly greater individualized, egotistical, celebrity-seeking, scandal-seeking, attention-seeking kind of thing that's gone on that actually has, is constantly fighting, it's, it's, it's feeding the first set of conditions, impacting the first conditions, but not addressing them. And I, I think that, I mean, the way you described about people, you know, just like, I think like, but how convivial are you really like <laughs> you know with all this theorization and it's it's it is i mean it's 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 quite nasty and brutish out and i know if i could speak sort of like you know you work in complex institutions with people across institutions in networks with friends and colleagues and people you like and people you don't know, et cetera. And then you, you sort of, you go out with your own friends or you see your own family and fuses are short and, you know, we're not always nice to each other on a most basic level, much mm-hmm. less sort of this unified whole. And I always think the way you were describing it made me think of this sort of like this, this sort of like perfect kind of family postcard. And underneath it is just tired, exhausted, slightly bitter people right mm-hmm. who we've all experienced that mm-hmm. and that makes it really really hard and maybe it's i don't know do we keep up the facade and tailor everything to it so we have unity or do we are we are a little more honest about it we just like, get honest yeah. a good friend of mine stephanie wong she always talks about Someone Bill t- change. At, at Bill change. Actually, at Bill change. Pick up at Bill change. Actually, <laughs> so wrong about Bill change. Um, always talks about. Um, someone says this. Uh, I can't remember who it is, but some, what's under the bonnet? 
Mm. So it's like we've got these nice shiny cars which are like look really glossy and shiny, but actually what's under the bonnet? And like I think we stop pretending because what's under the bonnet, it's it's more dangerous to like pretend that this car is fully functioning. Like and your piece, your piece is the piece that blows up and then like I was about to use language that I probably shouldn't use. You can use it. But like, no, but like, we're all fucked. We're all yeah. just, and then we're all fucked. Like you've, blown, like, you've blown us up, we're all fucked now. Whereas actually, if I know that you're not, you don't belong in this car, like we can do, we can have a more honest conversation. And then if from that space, that might be like, we can talk about, like, I feel like I'm more likely to get you on side in earnest, in truth, if we have that conversation and we look what's under the bonnet. Um, whereas anything else at any given point like I'm looking one I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder so I can't perform my function like fully comfortably like in the way that in a way that is sustainable um because I'm too busy looking over my shoulder or I'm too afraid to be wrong because that's the other thing when you're on when you're on a team with people that you don't really trust that don't that you don't feel have your back that's when the performance element comes out because you're too busy being right than you are actually coming up with new ideas. Yeah, oh, that's so interesting because actually what I, what I, I hadn't, I've been thinking about this a bit, but you've kind of, the way, the way you explained that made me kind of, it sort of illuminated a bit. It's that people are also always trying to be right, but they're also always trying to check if you're all right and if you think they're all right. Mm. And instead of that creating a kind of, relationship or some kind of common ground which you might have even started with who knows you've actually undermined it i'm not sure that was your exact point but uh, what you said really mm. kind of illuminated that that feeling of like of checking each other out mm. and you see that a lot and not from a place of care so it's not me no, checking no, you out because sure. like, i genuinely i'm like i'm are you okay it's more me checking what's underneath the bonnet so yeah, i'm yeah. spending more time lifting up the bonnet to figure out that than just trusting the mechanics of the machine and that I think there is something about us building in earnest it means being in community with people it means me knowing your blind spots actually and me making an informed decision to say do you know what these this person's blind spots are these things and this is where they are potentially quote-unquote dangerous to me but actually I know that and I trust them enough or I can work with them in a way that like mitigates in in whatever ways it does but what we're doing at the moment just I don't know I just think uh, there's a part of me that's really happy with how things look because I do think that it's you can't there are less arguments for for existing in this way mm. like now now more than ever I think it's really clear that we need to do something different um and that gives me some hope and I think starting the work of like the, those dinner table conversations, I call them fly on fly on the wall conversations. Mm. So what are the conversations that we are having about race or about identity politics, about oppression, anti-oppression politics? What are, what are the conversations that we're having at the dinner table with our partners, with our children, with our friends, our, our colleagues? That what is What are the fly on the wall conversations and how do we bring out and shine a light on some of these things? in a way that actually doesn't send a shame and isn't about shaming people, but allows people to really have active opportunities to like learn and develop their thinking. I mean, that that's so interesting. The, 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 yeah, I think the, um, the dinner table thing or the fly on the wall, it was, it just reminded me, I just, I saw an exhibition in Hastings uh, a number of weeks ago um, on uh, a black British arts sort of, um, exhibition and 
one after uh, every day they the artists sat down at a table and had tea together and had a conversation. And of course, because they were having the same conversation, the same it was repeating the same things, but the audience was getting to experience it possibly for the first time. And I was thinking how brilliant that was and what an experience it was. And you had this sort of, you had the jokes about the, you know, the Stuart Hall-esque tea, you know, mm. um, which I, I quite liked. And I was like, I want to kind of like, oh, is this is this a Hall reference? But um, <laughs> it was like a dumb sociology, sociologist uh, question. And they'd be like, oh, sociologist. <laughs> every, one we, every week we get one. Um, but the, it was what was interesting about it. And I, I don't mean this as a critique. But you can't account for the audience. So the audience comes in there and you have some really interesting people had like stories of their own sort of immigration history, their experience with racism, their experience of living in a community that changed. And then you start to have there's multiple routes you can go from there. <laughs> and then you would go, but don't all lives matter? And you're like, oh, but you, and so when you have these conversations and you replay them, you 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 open it up to having yes, you bring not, it out. You bring it out, but you don't just bring out reactionary you bring out reactionary ideas, but you also bring out the possibility that someone every day is gonna start from year zero or ground like and have that make you make you perform that same but I think that that's the point. I think that it's recognizing because mm. I think sometimes there is this idea that we've moved and that's part of the issue. I think this this idea, this illusion of progress. Yeah. And like, actually, the reality is you are absolutely right. Every single day we're starting from ground zero. And that in and of itself tells us where we are. So these ideas and these conversations about progress and like framing the idea, because the stats are telling us other things. So even and if we even if in the quote unquote culture wars, mm. right, that don't exist, but even in the culture wars, there is like there is depending on what echo chamber you operate in, there is like an idea of progress. In reality, like, like we, there, it doesn't, it's, it's definitely not as linear as people are suggesting that it is. Um, and I think shining a light on that is really important for us to get, again, get creative about what we do with that. What does that, what does this mean in practice? Yeah, it's, it's, that's weird because I, I've always been like, I mean, I'm, I'm very against the idea of progress, like as a narrative. <laughs> no, no, that's no I know. But you know what's so funny? I'm so glad I knew you were going to say that because I know you're both the same. Yeah. <laughs> I know you like, both like, like, come on, now. Like, I wanted to be <laughs> like, can we get serious? Can we like, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, I don't want to have to stay in the same place over and over again have that conversation with Jordan Peterson because you just read 10 yeah because <laughs> you just watched a YouTube video yeah. and I think I think there's there's there are discussions <laughs> which can occur again and again are important ones and are educational there are ones that their toxicity is compounded yeah. by making everyone re like rehearse it yeah. yes yeah. and I and I, I think sort of like I mean Obviously, we know what the issues at stake are with these different ones, but it's, um, yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird. And just coming back to um, what you both were saying in terms of like the conversations or like the the re factional regrouping, I really, I really like that as because there'll be because it's it's quite a good one to sort of debate with people on because there'll be people that kind of think very similar to us that will be like, well, not factional regrouping. That's, that's, that, you can't do that. Like, that's not. But actually, like, I think that comes from 
something which I need to interrogate myself in this work. So let's just say my my faction is those that are trying to produce knowledge in creative, imaginative, audible ways, but also as part of kind of your left-wing media academic kind of sphere of people, even though that in itself is constantly contested because of anti-blackness and racism within within how we imagine knowledge producers. But what I know that I have to do now in order to really participate in that factional regrouping is have a conversation and be much more open with my own um with my own politics particularly when it concerns power ego um uh dabbling in neoliberalism like be being really honest about where that comes from and how that's informed some of the work that I've done because I think that and I, I speak to Ez about this almost daily at the moment, where where we it's so hard to imagine new ways of thinking and creating when we do have things that are seemingly authentic, let's say surviving society, for example, it means that you you kind of develop um what you develop like a almost like a shield and that shield means that you you are positioned and sometimes positioned as beyond reproach or beyond um, critique and that's because of the terrain that we're in and the terrain being that there's just so it feels so hopeless and helpless and you have something like this and it's like oh this is like this is great but for me like it's got to a point now with my own work where that's just it's just not it's not enough and it's also not creating and imagining in ways that is actually serving the people that we're trying to talk about. And so for me, my kind of, yeah, again, so me, my kind of factionary grouping is really kind of trying to openly talk about like things like my ego, things like um, how I operate, um, not necessarily even to, to inspire others, but to just say that like, where I'm a I'm a human being mm. and there's things that I I both want and desire that maybe sometimes can uh, in contestation with some of the politics that I'd like to think that I'm aligned with does that make does that make sense yeah I'm not trying to say that I'm like some kind of like reformed capitalist or anything like that like I really I very much desire a socialist cooperative like future for all but I think that where I've where when we've developed surviving society I've not been open about things to do with myself whilst also putting myself out there it's 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 created yeah again like this shield that I really want to try try and interrogate more and sort of really lean into what Ez was talking about in terms of um not being ashamed of getting things wrong and being really open to imagining with other people together in ways that does very much critique myself yeah yeah it's um it's interesting as well because when when doing that I feel like I seek to in my practice I seek to be like emergent and transparent that has its pros and cons stuff around like credibility yeah I think there's a bit of a narrative that comes out of that that might feed that might add value or it might take away so it adds things and it takes things if that makes sense um and that I think recognizing in myself when I am feeding into the narrative of being I don't know just be a certain way yeah and what, what I'm also saying here is that I am 
I'm very good at talking about myself and social issues without actually talking about myself in relation to those social issues. Yeah. So I sort of can give the impression of transparency and authenticity when actually I'm not I'm not really doing that. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I think that that's something, if we engage in that on the left, I think that the, there'll be some really brilliant conversations to come out of that. Yeah. But it, but it's also about where and how we have those conversations. Yeah. Like, so I think there's something about not needing. So for me, knowing that I don't need to die on the cross, like I don't yeah, need yeah, to. Yeah. It doesn't need to be. But again, back to the factional regrouping in my intimate relationships, um, in the kind of in the day to day interpersonal interactions that I have, how am I showing my work, my workings out? Basically, yeah. how am I showing people that's it, that this that's is it. this is how I've got to this this place Show of thinking or being? This is the journey there. Yeah, that's really interesting because I wonder. You know that 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 thing we were, just, we were talking about before about that that tension between checking people out and policing them. Mm. I wonder. I wonder how like if you open the door to that, to what you're referring to, Chantal, is that you know what will translate to people. Talk, does talking about yourself mean a exacerbation of the existing problem? Mm. Like constant selling yourself, con- weaponizing your yourself, mm. um, branding, promotion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that all our employers want us to do mm. or our, our, you know, or we want to do because we want to get a promotion or attention mm. or cited or whatnot. And I, there's a, there's a, there's a potential tension there. I don't know. I've, I've, it, it's not because I, I, I completely agree, but it's one of the, it's taking me back to maybe my cynicism. Are people ready for that? Like, yeah, no, no, definitely. But it's, it's also noticing that people aren't all ready for it and like aligning with, so I mm. think it is, it's doing it yeah. without the need for it to be validated. So it's yes. not me saying that I'm going to do it and then by doing it, people are going to align with it, connect with it or engage with it in yeah. the way that I want them to. I can't police because I'm not checking them out back. So I'm not doing it. And then perform- it's not like me performing it and then be, be like, okay, how do people respond? And yeah. then I'm checking what they're doing. No, it's just me standing in my authenticity. And then that yeah. there will be lots of people that take to that and there will be lots and lots of people that don't and that continue those existing ways. But it doesn't, it doesn't change that. Like yeah. I, I think the aim of it isn't to like change how people respond to it, but it's about modelling what it, what, it, what it is like to do this public facing work in that way. Because then, if you're yeah. seeking the validation, you're still not. You're still if you're seeking the validation, you're still mm-hmm. not checking your ego because mm-hmm. that means you're doing it again for more to feed your ego, and that's yeah. I, absolutely, and I, I'm not. I'm not saying like you know, are people ready? Like I'm the judge. I don't know if I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just on a, on a sort of slightly personal note. Mm-hmm. Um, I I wrote like the, my first reflexive piece. Like I, I've written about reflexivity, but I haven't really written about my own positionality. And I wrote something on like why I work on the far right, and mm. it was a about the, sort of the politics of working on it. And it, I swear it was like four thousand words. I, it must have taken me a year and a half to write. Mm. <laughs> and it was like it's an existential crisis. Like mm. every time I looked at it, and maybe that's because I'm not very good at that. Maybe because I invested too much in it, but it's this, it's this constant, and there's also cultural issues, I think, mm-hmm. but there's ways in which sort of like, I was like, um, you don't want to be the universal subject, but you don't want, you don't want to promote yourself or center yourself. Sorry, I'm having like a reaction to this because it's like, and that's the work that you're 
that we are meant to be doing, mm. yeah. that we're meant to be doing the work that feels so uncomfortable. like uncomfortable. If I'm mm. so comfortable, if it, like if I'm if I've written something and it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable, then what am I really contributing? Like, and I think we get uncomfortable when we're contributing something new. So if I was if I was just feeding, if I was just building on that, we were talking about it um, earlier actually mm. around that how sometimes people when in their writing uh, what like producing knowledge looks like today is just saying things so it's like just saying different yeah, things don't guarantee right? on this. so people just say <laughs> things and then like and then uh, like it's me saying like oh Aaron said this and Chantel said that and like someone else said that and and it's just saying things but it's like what are you saying what is the point that you are trying to make through this right mm. and it's like re- recognizing that that piece is you are saying something of yourself like of and yes you are like referencing that like, old ideas that come from somewhere but you are speaking mm. to like a living experience of your so you are contributing something of yourself and i think Mm. that actually that's the place that we need to be working from and offering to this movement like from that place of like oh this is what like my experience is saying yeah no i mean absolutely i think that's really really important i love that just saying things um (laughs) did i make a face yeah Um, that was good because i know you agree there's like several several levels on several levels but it actually made me think also of the um i i was thinking about that whole of you know deeds not words right which is like so weird for like an academic (laughs) (laughs) and i don't mean that there's no deeds yeah but the idea of like you're doing something you're going for your sort of like your your performance review annually and they're like what did you do this year i did this 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 why don't i don't see it yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. what's your uh ultrametric what's your uh age index what's your this what's your that but the um how many how many how many likes did you get how many followers do you have on twitter but it's 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 interesting because actually like there's so many opportunities and i think it says something about the the state and the system we're in that it's almost too easy to fall into that ne- that that sort of bad part of it mm-hmm. and in fact there's another another thing about being uncomfortable or having discomfort. It's also becoming invisible. Mm. And invisibility, we talk about politically and theoretically as sort of a problem. But it's also sometimes, it's sometimes maybe a good idea, particularly if you have positions of power, to not use them to just promote yourself. And I say this like it's not, and people will agree probably, but they, they're still not doing it there's no like the idea of having to promote yourself and and you want to reflect on who you are you want to present what you think you you, there there is that fine line between centering yourself and wagging your finger at other people which is all sort of invited in the in the context of a sort of social media storm (laughs) and a culture war and I think it's just, it, these are these are hard things that require a lot of analysis, but also require like a lot of reflective and reflexive good practice. But you can't do it unless you do it. Yep. And I think that you talking about that process of writing that piece, like I felt the same, like it felt like that is a very important thing and a very important contribution. It actually goes beyond that kind of centering of self and speaks to the politics that I think what we're saying is we need to engage in more in our kind of factional regrouping. Yeah, and it's the how you do it. So like, 
it's the process so it's not the theorizing it but even in what you're saying about not getting into like wagging up wagging the fingers or it's like documenting the wagging the finger so there's something mm. in like because I, I think the ideal would be to not wag the finger right but yeah. in reality someone said something stupid my if my if my instinct is to wag the finger or to comment or not or whatever it's it's documenting how I do that what it adds what it takes away and it's like being in that because I think there's also this idea of like puritism that will will reach a place where we're not engaging in those behaviors but I think that there is a very human I think that there's something very human about like at times they're being in reaction so it's yeah. like it's not moving totally away from like being in reaction um, in as much as I can see where it doesn't add value but it's noticing that that happens and that because I, I think there's there's yeah I think there's also fear of getting into a place where we are to, we're, we're working to do the right we're working so hard at doing the right thing that yep. we like remove our ability to be human in it in that process absolutely and I think I think there's a, a really important distinction there is sort of calling things out as you see them that are wrong or dangerous or need some kind of like commentary. I don't want to use the word feedback because we're like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, I think it's the, where the wagging of the finger and being a corrective unto yourself is the problem because actually it not just treats other people as perpetually wrong and falling into traps that you yourself have decided are important ones. But it also, it distances you from your ability to reflect on your own practice because mm. you're yeah. always displacing. You're yeah, always, always displacing issue. And yeah. uh, I, I mean, there are like, I mean, I've, you know these people on social media. Mm. I mean, I I'm never cease to be astounded at people who will regularly just chastise the world. And then, of course, offer their services. Yeah. Right. But, like, but yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a it's a problem, but it's also I mean, it's also a capitalist modality. Mm. You've just convicted me on something. I'm um in a good way. I'm um I'm a, I'm having beef with an organisation for want of a better phrase. I was trying to think of what is actually happening, but I'm I'm like not enjoying this one an organisation mm. that I used to freelance for. Um, and I've been doing a lot of finger wagging and more from a place of frustration. Like yeah, I'm just yeah. so tired. So I've just been like, just saying, I've just been saying things. Um, but again, I'm just well, saying things. I don't yeah. know if I'm, if, I, if it's an organized or structured, what my hope is, but I've just from a place of frustration that I've just been doing a lot of like finger wagging, but actually hearing what you're saying, there is, there is some reflexivity that can mm. happen. Like, and looking at, the importance of that being able to do that, but also recognizing that sometimes when the problem is feels so big, and I, I'll speak for myself, and I'm just tired. Mm. Sometimes that it's almost like an output. It's almost like a release. It's almost like something that like, like a, a space to like. I'm just gonna vent. vent. I'm just gonna vent. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I'm, when I say all that, I'm not omitting myself from those practices by any means. I, I there's you know there's many tweets that I go like oh, I've had enough of this <laughs> you know I like, love your tweets huh? they um, crack me up. <laughs> It was like, I was trying to think about it the other day because it was like, sometimes I feel like I need to get something off my chest that no one else may even care about <laughs> or really realize the weight that came off me and just go, I'm so happy for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but there's the other ones that I'm just like, 
wow, now I'm just kind of like getting too much off my chest and it's about me. Or, or the worst thing is I'm looking for trouble. Yeah. Which is pretty much like, the, I, I think might be the dominant Twitter approach. <laughs> You go, oh, it's a great space. I found so many comrades and so much solidarity and so much hope here. I've also found a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness and a lot of fighting. And it's like, it's finding a way to do that. And I just, I, yeah, I, 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 I've, I've said this very, I've said this often in, in, in a sort of my home context and family context and with friends going, do you know what happened on Twitter? I'm like, no, I don't because I'm not on it every five minutes. <laughs> do you know what happened? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you I might know who said this to me as well. I get you. I get you, um, guys. We're going to have to wrap up there. Um, thank you so much for such a brilliant conversation. I'm so glad we finally brought together these two heavyweights. We're definitely going to have to do this again. Um, listeners, we'll be back again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review, and subscribe. To host or produce a series of Surviving Society, get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.